Coming up next, Upstate's HealthLink on air. On this week's program, we'll learn about the challenges of diagnosing multiple sclerosis, a disease of the central nervous system with some complicated symptoms. One of the more common ones is known as optic neuritis, where the person would have a sudden loss of vision uh, in one eye. Then we'll hear from rehabilitation psychologists who are starting a body-mind wellness group for people affected by cancer. Our goal has been to provide direct clinical care services to cancer patients in need of those while uh, developing a psychosocial oncology program. And we'll talk with an orthopedic surgeon who's involved in cartilage preservation and restoration. Moving a plug of cartilage from one area or from a cadaver into an area of damaged cartilage, that's a one-time surgery. All that and a selection from our Healing Muse coming up right after the news. This is Upstate Medical University's HealthLink on Air, your chance to explore a variety of health and medical issues from Central New York's only academic medical center. I'm your host, Amber Smith. On this week's show, we'll hear about a new body-mind wellness group for people affected by cancer and the importance of regularly assessing a patient's level of distress. Then we'll talk with an orthopedic surgeon about cartilage preservation and restoration. But first, we'll learn about the challenges of diagnosing multiple sclerosis, a disease of the central nervous system with symptoms that can show up in a variety of other diseases. Multiple sclerosis is a disease of the central nervous system that can cause a variety of unpredictable symptoms. Its diagnosis is tricky and may involve the expertise of a neuropsychologist such as Dr. Dominic Carone. Dr. Carone, coordinator of the Neuropsychology Assessment Program at Upstate Medical University, is here to talk about the role of neuropsychology in the evaluation of multiple sclerosis. Welcome, Dr. Carone. Thank you. Thanks. Glad to be here. Well, let's start by explaining what a neuropsychologist is and what a neuropsychological evaluation entails. Good question, because many people get confused about that. A, a neuropsychologist is a type of psychologist who specializes in the assessment of how the brain uh, functions and how that relates to how we think and how we feel and how we behave. And there are many ways that a neuropsychologist goes about doing that. Uh, one way is by sitting with the patient and doing a detailed clinical interview so they could understand the history of the presenting problems. A, a, another way is by uh, looking at a detailed review of the person's medical records. Uh, another way is by making behavioral observations. And then uh, there's the actual testing component of the mm. evaluation, which is where uh, we administer the patient a battery of tests. They're called neuropsychological tests. Uh, these are tests that mostly focus on assessing somebody's thinking skills, so their memory, their ability to learn new information, their ability to find words, their ability to think quickly, their ability to use visual spatial constructional skills and processing skills, their ability to pay attention and concentrate, uh, executive functioning, which is a broad term that refers to higher level thinking skills such as planning, okay. multitasking, 
abstract thinking. Uh, there are also some self-report scales that are administered to check into things like personality and uh, emotional functioning, such as depression, anxiety, um, and, and, and other types of self-reported symptoms, such as fatigue. And there's also usually some type of uh, sensory motor component of the evaluation that as well. That sounds like it takes a lot of time. <laughs> it does. The length of the evaluation really will differ uh, depending on the uh, type of patient it is and the type of referral question that needs to be answered. It could be done in as little as uh, an hour or two, and sometimes it could take up to four to six wow. hours. It really wow. just depends on the person. Well, and um, wh what types of patients do you take care of? Do you see a wide variety? Or? Well, our program does see a wide variety. We're really what I call a medically-based neuropsychology assessment program. In other words, we really structure our program so that we evaluate people who have known or reasonably suspected brain damage or brain dysfunction. So common types of diagnosis diagnoses that we would see are patients with uh, traumatic brain injuries, uh, patients with uh, epilepsy, uh, some of whom are considering uh, going for surgery, so we might do a pre- and post-surgical evaluation, um, the patients with brain tumors, patients with strokes, uh, patients with developmental disorders such as cerebral palsy, uh, and also patients with um, what we call demyelinating diseases such as multiple sclerosis would be, uh, would be oh, another one. Okay. Well, I actually want to focus on multiple sclerosis, so right. let's talk a little bit about what that is, though. Well, essentially, multiple sclerosis is a, is a demyelinating disease. In other words, there are nerve fibers uh, in the brain and in the spinal cord that are covered by a fatty nerve sheath known as myelin. And in multiple sclerosis, the myelin gets attacked and it gets damaged and it gets broken down. So an analogy that I like to give people would be if you could imagine a, a fiber optic cable system that transmits information hmm. and imagine the covering of the fiber optic uh, system breaking down. That would result in information not being transmitted efficiently. And so that is what results in clinical symptoms in, in, in patients in, in MS is okay. the uh, demyelinating process. Now, if the disease process gets severe enough and the white matter damage uh, becomes extensive, what could ultimately happen is the gray matter of the brain uh, could become damaged as well, and that could result in what we refer to as atrophy or tissue loss in the, in the brain. But it can also affect the spinal cord. Is this a genetic um disease? Is it passed from the family member down? Good, good question. There is a genetic component to it. You wouldn't necessarily refer to it as a genetic disease per se, uh, but it is. there is a genetic component, uh, certainly. Um, there's a certain um, a, a, a gene uh, that uh, APOE4 uh, allele, which uh, some patients with MS or uh, are more likely to have than people who don't have MS. But the cause of MS has been d debated and discussed for decades and decades and decades, and there are multiple possible reasons for it. There are environmental factors, there are viral factors. It's more prevalent in the, in the North than it is in the South. Um, so th there are many possible environmental and genetic factors that could contribute to the uh, development of MS. And I've seen it described in some patients as mild, some moderate, some right. severe. Is there any trajectory that... Well, that's a good question. There are certainly different levels of severity of the disease, uh, typically uh, depending on how long the person has had it, and also what type of form of the disease that they have. There are different types of, f of forms. The most 
Uh, common one is something known as relapsing remitting MS. Uh, that's a form of multiple sclerosis in which the person experiences clinical attacks. That's what we call them. They're, they're acute, uh, is an acute onset of symptoms and signs. Uh, and then the person experiences the attack and then they bounce back. That's the relapsing remitting part of it. Um, then there, uh, if that lasts long enough and continues to go on, typically maybe for about 10 to 20 years, they could transition into what's called the secondary progressive form of MS in which the person uh, starts to actually decline and not bounce back like they had before. Oh. Uh, there is also what we call relapsing progressive MS where the person will have relapses but progressively go downwards instead of bouncing back uh, like in the relapsing remitting form. Uh, and the worst form would be the primary primary progressive form in which the person actually continues to have a steady decline uh, right from the beginning. Uh, and that's the cases that you tend to think of when you associate uh, patients with multiple sclerosis who might be in a wheelchair at some point. That, that, that is a more a quickly progressive form of the disease. It tends okay. to be more severe. All right. Well, you're listening to Upstate's Health Link on Air, and we're talking about multiple sclerosis with Dr. Dominic Carone, a neuropsychologist at Upstate Medical University. Um, so let's talk a little bit about how multiple sclerosis is diagnosed. Is, is, it, is it something where uh, you're a certain age, you start looking at, at this in patients, or... What, well, what are the sort of the symptoms that start? Sure. Well, it is more common around the 40s, um, but it can happen in, at different uh, age levels. Um, but there are, are, are different um, things that you would look for in terms of the diagnosis. And there are actual uh, formal um, criteria that uh, can be used. And those criteria that, that, that are typically used are referred to the McDonald's criteria, not McDonald's where you would go get a, a hamburger and french fries, but McDonald after the person who, uh, who named it and, and cr created the criteria. Uh, these criteria typically take into account a combination of uh, different clinical signs and symptoms. They're typically sensory motor symptoms. Uh, uh, one of the more common ones is known as optic neuritis, where the person would have a sudden loss of vision uh, in one eye. Um, and that's typically because there's been destruction of the um, um, white matter, the nerve sheath that surrounds the optic nerve. Wow. Okay. Um, now, there's remyelination that can occur, and that can uh, result in the restoration of vision, but these symptoms could last for several days, uh, even a little bit longer. Um, so that, that would be one example of a type of symptom. So you would look at, is, did the person experience one of these clinical attacks? And that would typically drive them to go to their physician, which would sure. typically prompt a referral to a neurologist. And what would happen at that point uh, should be a brain MRI. And what you would look at for the uh, McDonald criteria is, uh, does the person uh, have presence of lesions in the brain? Now, these lesions are evidence of, of disease. They're, it's typically uh, looks uh, bright on the MRI. They're these bright abnormal areas uh, that reflect inflammation. And so what would happen over time to meet the criteria for MS is you would have to have a dissemination of these lesions in space and time. In other words, they don't just show up on one spot on the MRI, they show up in multiple spots and they, um, um, and, and this is something that also is present on multiple MRIs over time. So they move around in space and time in association with clinical attacks. So Someone that... could just have one clinical attack 
<laughs> and it would not necess- it would not by definition meet the criteria for MS. That would be called a clinically isolated syndrome or CIS. Some patients with a clinically isolated syndrome go on to develop MS and some do not. So this is why it requires monitoring. It's not something that would, you know, typically be diagnosed just based on one attack. Um, now, there are some clinicians that might go ahead and do that, but that wouldn't be strict following of the diagnostic criteria. Okay. But if it looks like um, MS, and there's some other symptoms too, cognitive and emotional symptoms? Yes. Most people along? focus on the, on the physical symptoms, which, you know, again, are typically sensory motor symptoms. I mentioned loss of vision. There could be loss of sensation on one side of the body. Difficulty walking is very common. Uh, the fatigue is very common. But there are uh, also emotional symptoms. Uh, depression, uh, 50% of uh, patients with MS have depression. And a uh, same number, 50% of patients with MS have cognitive impairment. Oh, okay. Um, yep. So uh, that's, uh, and that would, of course, be something that neuropsychologists would evaluate during the testing process. Well, uh, how common is it for multiple sclerosis to be misdiagnosed? So I know you have a paper that looked at a case, but right. is this, it's right. a pretty tricky diagnosis, right? Uh, it can be. It depends on the, on the case, and certain cases are more are, are clear than others. Um, uh, some cases uh, it's more controversial because what you essentially have to do to make the diagnosis is you have to be able to rule out that there are other uh, reasonable causes that can cause the uh, clinical symptoms and also the uh, what you're seeing on the MRI in terms of the lesions. Now, there are multiple uh, different diagnoses that can cause sensory motor symptoms, and there are uh, different diagnoses. Uh, for example, lupus cerebritis, which is when lupus infects the brain, uh, can uh, cause sensory motor symptoms, and it can cause lesions that show up on the, on the brain MRI. So there are uh, multiple conditions that could present similarly, and that's where you need the expertise of a neurologist to uh, look, and a neuroradiologist, to, to look at the scans and assess the clinical symptoms and, 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 and perhaps perform other diagnostic tests, such as lumbar puncture. There's something called visual evoked potentials and sensory evoked potentials uh, that can be done to uh, rule in or rule out MS or some other type of uh, cause that might be contributing to it. Well, tell me about the paper, because you had a case... Tell us about it. Right. This was a, a case uh, that I had uh, evaluated here in the neuropsychology assessment program last year and wound up publishing it as a, a case report in the, in the journal Applied Neuropsychology uh, Adult. And essentially what it was was a, a 61-year-old uh, woman who was um, uh, diagnosed with uh, MS uh, despite the fact that she did not have any classic MS relapses and remissions, as we discussed before, and, okay. and, and she only had um, one lesion that showed up on the MRI, mm-hmm. so they were, and it was on the brain MRI, not the spinal, so they were not uh, disseminated in, in space or time in terms of the lesions. Um, um, she was having problems like significant fatigue, and she was having intermittent right arm tingling and numbness and heaviness. But these were pretty constant symptoms. They were they were generally always there, and that's atypical for MS, where you typically have these uh, fluctuations right. and these relapses and remissions. So those things right there should have been some some clues. But she was diagnosed with MS, and she was. Um, 
uh, treated for it as well. In addition to that, in this particular patient, she had lesions in areas of the brain that you would not expect to see them in MS, but you would expect to see them in catacil. So these were markers that could have been used that actually were not used. Uh, long story short, um, after writing the report and talking to the patient and her husband about this uh, and getting back in touch with the neurologist, after a few months, the MS diagnosis was actually removed. And that's a process that I refer to that I do sometimes, which is called undiagnosis. undiagnosis sometimes patients okay. need to be undiagnosed. And, and um, you know, misdiagnosis does happen sometimes. Every clinician, uh, it's something that happens to every clinician. Diagnose, diagnostic process is one that sometimes evolves, but when new information comes in that points to the fact that a, a, an original diagnosis is wrong, you have to be willing to change that. And so, what that. what's the lesson for a patient from this? How do you th how do they guard themselves against it's, misdiagnosis? It's a good question because I think the the lesson is really for 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 two groups of individuals. One is yes for patients, but really more. Uh, I wrote the paper for clinicians because there needs to be more awareness among clinicians that these two conditions do not coexist. So if you see that those two things are happening or suspect that they're happening in the same patient, likely not the case. Okay. Um, so, and, and bringing to, you know, writing the paper was uh, one of the reasons for that was just to um, point out the different factors that can help distinguish between the two conditions. But for patients, um, patients should not be scared to uh, question a diagnosis and to ask questions to their physician, particularly asking what diagnostic criteria were used to make this diagnosis. That's very important because okay. in this particular case, the McDonald criteria do not look like they were followed. Okay. Um, well, thank you. Yep, no problem. Thank you. thank you for coming in and speaking about this. Thanks for having me. Um, this has been uh, your host, Amber Smith, speaking with Dr. Dominic Carone, and this is Upstate's HealthLink on Air. Stay tuned. Next, screening for distress in cancer patients on Upstate's HealthLink on Air. listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith. Within the field of psychology is a specialty area that focuses on rehabilitation. The people working in this area are known as rehabilitation psychologists, and today we'll learn what that's all about. With us is psychologist Jeffrey Schweitzer, who is part of the Department of Physical Medicine and Rehabilitation at Upstate, and Brian Arismendi, who is a PhD candidate in clinical psychology with a minor in neuroscience from the University of Arizona. Welcome to you both. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Hey. Well, uh, Dr. Schweitzer, um, people might not think of a psychologist working in physical medicine and rehabilitation. So can you explain sort of what your role in that department is? Is that, do patients in rehab necessarily see a psychologist as part of their treatment? Uh, not necessarily. Uh, we, uh, we describe our rehabilitation psychology as a, a voluntary service. Uh, our discipline works with an integrated rehab team consisting of medicine, physical, occupational, and speech therapists, social workers, case managers, really the whole gamut. 
and um, we take for granted that whatever uh, conditions bring folks onto our unit is tremendously stressful. So okay. what we do is to approach them after they've been admitted, um, describe for them our service, you know, what we have to offer them in terms of coping and adjustment, and then take it from there. If they're interested, we'll perform a uh, structured assessment and then collaboratively decide on any treatment goals um, if there's a need there. So it sounds very individualized to the patient. Very much so. Okay. So rehabilitation psychology, is this, uh, is this a new specialization in psychology? Um, it's actually older. Um, it uh, originated uh, after World War II. Okay. And psychologists were working with veterans um, returning from combat who had um, developed um, physical and psychological traumas. And uh, that work continued for five to 10 years. And um, gradually that was applied to civilian populations as well. And okay. in 1958, uh, the American Psychological Association actually developed the subdivision of rehabilitation psychology. And it's really blossomed over the, the decades. Interesting. Well, I saw that Brian um, focuses a lot on cancer survivorship, and we'll get into that a lot more. Um, there's probably other specializations within rehab psychology, right? With yes. Uh, and historically, um, the field psychologists within the field were referred to as medical psychologists. Mm -hmm. And over time, uh, specializations have developed under that rubric. So rehabilitation psychology, health psychology, and neuropsychology. And then within each of those, <laughs> there are also subspecialties wow. too. Is there an overarching philosophy for the rehab psychologists or? Yes, uh, so uh, we are working with uh, folks who have disabilities, acute and chronic health conditions. And really our goal is to optimize health and well-being, uh, independence and self-determination, uh, functional ability, and social role participation across, across the lifespan. Okay, all right. Mm -hmm. um, are there other types of patients that you see um, outside of physical medicine and rehabilitation? Oh, like well, con uh, concussion management, are you involved in that? Yes. Mm -hmm. um, first, let, let me just describe you know, some of the populations that we okay. see on the inpatient unit um, because it is, it's pretty wide and varied. Uh, we're meeting with folks who are recovering from traumatic brain injury, uh, concussion, uh, as you mentioned, uh, spinal cord injuries, uh, amputation, uh, polytrauma, so folks who have been in serious motor vehicle accidents, uh -huh. They've broken their arms and, and legs, um, and there can be acute stress uh, associated with those conditions and major adjustment issues that arise. Now, outside of inpatient, uh, we also have some rehabilitation psychologists at the Institute of Human Performance right here in Syracuse, and they're providing outpatient okay. services. And over there, they have the Concussion Management Center uh, which is a, a great resource from folks um, coping with and recovering from concussion, as well as a neuropsychology program, which is uh, mm -hmm. mainly assessment. Uh, so folks with uh, 
disability and health conditions can go there to undergo formal testing to figure out you know, what their relative strengths and weaknesses are and get some recommendations for additional services. So neuropsychology assessment. Yes. That, what, what's involved in that? Can, sure. Um, I, yeah, I'm happy to um, chime in on that. Um, so that is um, typically a, um, a individual um, a, a assessment with um, the neuropsychologist and um, the patient that involves uh, a, a battery of various tests. Um, they assess um, what we'd call executive functioning, so decision-making, um, pattern recognition, using materials, using physical materials, um, various um, spatial and uh, mathematical types of tasks uh, that um, are assessed to see where um, they lie on a spectrum and um, in what um, areas they may have um, some sort of challenges or deficits, if, if there are any. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, once that's done, a, a large report is written up to uh, for the other providers and, and for um, uh, the sake of feedback to the patient describing what, what they've found based on the results of these tests that are all um, widely normed, meaning that they've been done on many, many people so that they have this great calibration system sort of to determine where this person may fall. Mm -hmm. Well, you're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. We're talking about rehabilitation psychology with Dr. Jeffrey Schweitzer, who is part of the Department of Physical Medicine and Rehabilitation at Upstate, and Brian Arismendi, a PhD candidate in clinical psychology. Um, so let's talk a little bit more about rehab psychology and cancer care. Hmm. Um, there's now psychologists working as integrated members of the comprehensive care team at the Upstate Cancer Center. So can you explain how that works? Sure. Uh, so psychosocial uh, care uh, for cancer patients is actually uh, a more recent emergent uh, phenomenon that we've seen develop, would you say, over the past 10, 15 years? Yeah, my understanding is that psychosocial oncology specifically really came to the fore in the mid-80s, so maybe, uh, maybe a little bit longer than uh -huh. that, mid to late 80s. Yeah. Okay. And really, it originates from this um, medical philosophy uh, that is focusing on the, the whole person. Okay. So in addition to their physical health and, and well-being, we want to also focus on their psychological and emotional health. That seems to make imminent sense. Yes, right? <laughs> uh -huh. uh, so uh, the, the can't... Cancer Center was erected within the, the past two years, and increasingly there was this recognition of the need for psychosocial services. So in the, the past six months, uh, myself and Dr. Rodner, another rehabilitation psychologist, have become increasingly involved with the program, and our goal has been to provide direct clinical care services to cancer patients in need of those, while uh, developing a psychosocial oncology program, uh, which is a, a longer-term goal that we're, we're embarking on right now. I've uh, seen it referred to as the uh, emotional distress being considered the sixth vital sign, as important as heart rate, respiratory rate, things like physical things. Yes. Um, so that's sort of becoming the philosophy? Absolutely. Okay. Uh, so you have pulse, blood pressure, temperature, respiration, 
And then uh, in the, the mid-90s, uh, they were starting to recognize the importance of measuring pain. So mm -hmm. pain right. became the, the fifth vital sign. And uh, what they were doing is asking, you know, how are you experiencing pain on a scale from zero to 10? And finding that that simple screen, that simple uh, assessment was really benefiting the patients. Uh, and uh, about five to 10 years after that, there's this recognition that, hey, there's this subjective psychological and emotional distress too that is impacting their health. Um, that is impacting outcomes. So this is really important for us to pay attention to, and so much so that it was coined the sixth vital sign. Mm, okay. Now, do all cancer patients require psychosocial intervention, or is it offered to all cancer patients? And it's, it's offered to all, um, certainly not required. Um, typically, the, the way that it goes is they, they present to the cancer center uh, with some symptoms that are uh, suggestive of a, a cancer diagnosis. And as they're undergoing that diagnostic process uh, and collaborating with their oncologists, as well as some of the, the nurses, uh, they may report that they're experiencing high levels of stress, anxiety, fear, which are extremely common under these circumstances, and having a, a difficult time coping with that. So under those circumstances, they would refer those patients to see us for initial evaluation. And what we would do is to talk more about those symptoms and to understand them in the context of their cancer diagnosis, as well as the broader context of their life, and you know, to, to figure out how they're coping with that, if at all, um, to identify some resources and, and strengths that we can really build on. So it could be at the soon after diagnosis or at the time of diagnosis or it could be during treatment. Yes. Okay. Mm -hmm. I was yeah. just, oh, I'm sorry. Go uh -huh. ahead. Across the whole cancer trajectory. So uh, the time of diagnosis, at the time of treatment, which can be incredibly stressful and debilitating in itself, and also when they're in the, the clear, if you will, uh, which has been termed survivorship in the, the mm -hmm. cancer field. Uh, so the, the patients are uh, in remission mm -hmm. and uh, adjusting back to their life. And that, too, can present uh, an assortment of, of psychological issues um, with which we can help. Mm -hmm. And Brian, did you want to add something to that? Yeah, I was just going to say um, in reference to the distress screening, you know, it is the, it is the goal of um, our program and, um, from my understanding, programs nationwide to start moving towards distress screening um, at the patient's every visit um, and for every patient in a formalized fashion um, such that, that, again, the trajectory can be, um, can be mapped out and that um, even though a patient may not um, bring up the idea of their distress, that we are capturing that in some way, that we are asking about it rather than waiting for them to tell us. And right. Um, right. the logistics of that um, are, um, as you might imagine, a bit complicated, but um, that, is, that is one of our goals as well, is to implement that formal screening um, as, as we move forward. Yes. So what are the types of issues that cancer patients or their loved ones um, bring up or are dealing with? Are there like recurring themes that you see? Mm -hmm. 
probably uh, the biggest one, at least around the, the time of diagnosis, is something that we call mortality salience. Mm -hmm. um, so that is an acute attention to one's mortality, um, that, um, that one day I'm going to die, but in this context, that death could be imminent for me mm -hmm. um, and with, with this cancer diagnosis. Um, so understandably, you know, that brings about significant distress. Uh, and what we, we conceptualize it across three different levels. So intrapersonal distress, so you know, this, this possibility of imminent death, how does that affect me personally? Interpersonal, so how does it affect my relationships with my spouse, my family members, my friends, and my mm -hmm. broader community? You know, what, what, how would that affect them if I were to die? Mm -hmm. And also transpersonal or spiritual. Um, so what would death mean for me um, in the spiritual realm? You know, is there an afterlife? And, and if so, you know, how is, how is that going to affect me? All right. Well, tell me, um, I know we've got this uh, body-mind wellness group that's um, starting here at mm -hmm. Upstate. Mm -hmm. Do you get into these issues in the body-mind wellness group? Can you tell me how that works? Uh, yes. yes, absolutely. And we certainly do. Um, and this this group um, is um, a, an integrative group um, kind of collapsing across um, something that we would call psychoeducation. So teaching the, the um, group, the patients in the group, um, about various um, parts of their experience or, or various parts of whole body wellness, such as nutrition, sleep, stress physiology, these kinds of things. Um, we also incorporate an experiential component, um, which is um, practicing, say, um, very low impact yoga or practicing um, mindfulness, um, which is something that's gaining a lot more popularity right. recently. It's something that we see a lot in, in, um, in kind of, in, uh, I would say, mind body um, society now, if you will. And then in the um, third part is kind of a process component um, in which we um, allow the patients and ourselves to discuss how we've um, experienced the learning about these components of the group and practicing them. So how it, how it plays into our lives, how we might be able to use it, how it might be useful, so these kinds this, of things. Excuse me, is this a support yeah. group? It sounds similar. Um, it, there is a component of it that is, again, we call it process, where we do um, have everyone talk about um, their personal experiences. Um, but it is, not, it is not a support group. Um, in its truest form, because there is a educational and experiential practice part. So there's there's a lot more involved than um, each patient discussing their own experience. There is learning new material. There's integrating new material into their own. So lives. more like a group office visit. Um, yeah, I suppose it would be. It could be conceptualized as a hybrid of both of those. Okay. Yeah. All right. Now, is this open to? Um, Upstate cancer patients or all cancer patients? All cancer patients. Okay. Yes. So we will post on uh, the healthlinkonair.org website how to learn more information about how to get involved in that. Uh, if there's a phone number or a website, we'll put a link to that. Wonderful. Okay. We appreciate that. So, 
We've been talking, I want to thank both of you for being here. We've been talking with upstate psychologist Jeffrey Schweitzer and PhD candidate Brian Arismendi, and this is Upstate's HealthLink on Air. Coming up next, cartilage preservation and restoration. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. Thank you for listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith. Some of the most common injuries that orthopedic surgeons deal with involve damage to the cartilage in the joints. Here to discuss cartilage preservation and restoration is Dr. Todd Battaglia, an assistant professor of orthopedic surgery at Upstate. Welcome, Dr. Battaglia. Thank you. Thank you for having me. All right. Well, let's start by explaining what exactly is cartilage and, and what does it do for us? So in simplest terms, cartilage is basically the cushion that, that coats the bones at every one of our joints. Um, it does a lot of different things. It, it works as a shock absorber. Mm. It actually helps uh, control the friction so that your joint moves smoothly and freely. Uh, and it has some other special properties in terms of keeping the joint lubricated as well. What does it feel like? Is it more like liquidy or more like... Um, it's it's sort of a rubbery substance. It almost feels somewhat like a slippery, hard-boiled egg. I guess. Would be oh, a, okay, that's a good an analogy. So, um, so we're born with it. This is something we're born with. Is do our bodies keep producing it, or is there a limited? Well, that's unfortunately the problem that leads to much of what we're going to talk about today. Uh, we do produce it as we grow, and it has some very limited ability to regrow if we damage it. But for the most part, once you're an adult. Uh, and your cartilage is fully formed, if there is an injury, there's basically no mechanism that the body can regrow it and fix, uh, fix major injuries to the cartilage. Okay, and, it's, and cartilage is not indestructible. So, and that's what a large part of your practice is. Tell me about some of the common ways that you, your patients present with damage to their cartilage. Well, by far the most common method or, or type of cartilage damage we see is simply going to be wear and tear or what we in general mm. terms, call, call arthritis. So um, by age, mostly? By age, there's probably a genetic component. Uh, it's very controversial, but activity may play a role in terms of what types of activities and you know how much impact activity you do. Uh, body weight also plays a role, certainly. Mm. Smoking, as, as it is bad for everything else, it's also bad for your cartilage, and smokers huh. tend to have more arthritis. Um, but my practice is particularly concerned with sports medicine and younger people with cartilage injuries. And so those types of patients have uh, typically more of a traumatic issue, that they had a slip or a fall or a twist and they've injured their cartilage in a more direct way than and, just and wear a and sudden tear. thing. So it just, okay, all right. Well, um, what sorts of symptoms do, do people get when they have a sudden like injury like that? How would you know? So other than the actual history of saying I slipped or twisted and, and felt something, the symptoms are very similar uh, as most joint problems. There tends to be swelling. There's usually pain, sometimes focal to one point, but oftentimes just a, a more diffuse or broad achiness in the joint. And a lot of times there will be what we call mechanical symptoms, meaning a click or a catch or even a locking oh. of, the, of the joint. 
Okay. Well, how do you know it's um, cartilage and not bone? You really can't tell immediately. Most of these things will need some sort of workup, sometimes as basic as an x-ray and a physical examination, but for a lot of cartilage injuries, specifically uh, more advanced tests, specifically an MRI are needed. Oh, and then you can tell from that what's, okay. Well, based on that then, um, once you know that there is a cartilage damage of some sort, what are, what has been the common treatment? Well, up until you know, a decade or two ago, we really didn't have any way to regrow or regenerate cartilage. So most people were treated with simple management of the symptoms, meaning ice, bracing, anti-inflammatory medications. Um, and then if the cartilage damage was severe enough and the patient was old enough, we would replace the cartilage with metal and plastic, which is what a joint, joint replacement, replacement is. Okay. Correct. Okay. And are we talking about for knees or are we talking about elbows and shoulders and all joints? Well, joint replacements started out with hips and knees primarily, uh, but now shoulder replacements are fairly common, and there are actually replacements for almost any joint you can think of. There are elbow replacements, there are wrist replacements, there are ankle replacements. They're not performed nearly as commonly as hip and knee replacements are, um, but they're out there. Okay. And the joint replacements, typically they're for older patients and they work well in general or they do work well but they have some downsides um you know in all fairness joint replacements are in general very successful surgeries the great majority of people who have them are are happy they did it and would do it again Uh, but they have a finite lifespan meaning they wear out over time so the younger you are when you get a joint replacement the more likely you may wear that out and need it redone um that's not only a function of age, but the younger you are, the more active you tend to be, which would also increase the wear and tear on that joint. Um, and there are side effects. Joint replacements are big surgeries, and if you get a complication like an infection or some of the other more serious mm-hmm. things that can happen, uh, it can truly be life-altering. But they do last uh, decades, typically? or our, our technology is always evolving, and so the data we have now is really based on the joint replacements we did a decade or two ago. Uh, but certainly uh, a well-performed joint replacement, we would tell people you should expect at least a couple decades out oh, of this thing. Good. Okay. All right. Well, this is Upstate's Health Link on Air. I'm Amber Smith talking with orthopedic surgeon Todd Battaglia about cartilage preservation and restoration. So I want to switch and talk a little bit more about the younger people or the athletes typically um, that have a joint cartilage injury. Um, so how common is a cartilage injury like with, uh, you hear about people having ACL or anterior cruciate ligament tears or dislocated kneecaps, do those always come with cartilage damage too? Or They do not always, uh, but very frequently, in fact, much more frequently than, than many doctors appreciate. Now, it's not saying all of those need treatment. In fact, many of them don't need treatment, but from a purely statistical standpoint, if you tear your ACL, there's about a 25 to 35% chance that you've also done some damage to the surface cartilage in the knee. And if you've dislocated your patella or your kneecap, it's greater than 90% that you've likely done some sort of cartilage damage. So you, as the surgeon, have to repair the, whatever, the the break or the injury, plus also the cartilage has to be a concern. If it is serious enough, then that would require additional treatment to just the primary ACL or kneecap issue. Yes, ma'am. So up until relatively recently, many of these young people had little choice, really, but to live with kind of the pain. But over the past 10 or 15 years, um, tell us about, there's been some developments and some new technologies 
So um, tell us about those. True. In basic terms, we've basically uh, been able to come up with ways to either stimulate the growth of new cartilage to heal some of these lesions or to move or transplant cartilage from other sources to replace some of these injured areas. And those transplants or transfers can come both from the patient themselves or from a donor of wow. cadaver cartilage. Wow. So you, you're offering that here. You have the ability to do this, the transfers, the transplants, and the, and the regrowth? We do. We do wow. all of this. So how do you choose which of these methods is most appropriate for which patient? It's a very complicated question, and okay. every situation is, is an individualized decision. But in, in the most general factors that it comes down to, probably the most important is going to be the size of the cartilage damage because these different techniques um, work better in some cases and not so well in others depending on how much area you have to regrow or transplant. So that's probably the number one factor. Um, but other factors include where it is in the knee. Certain aspects of the knee are more accessible for some of these than for other techniques. Um, the demands of the patient, the age of the patient, all these kind of things play a role, as does what the patient is willing to go through. Some of these surgeries have relatively long recoveries and some are somewhat shorter. Oh. And that all has to be spelled out and discussed with the patient ahead of time. Wow. Well, walk me through how this is done. Is it a one-time surgery? Depending, I mean, I, I know it's going to be very patient by patient, but let's take kind of a run-of-the-mill average kind of knee damage. So if we were going to talk about this in terms of the general types of things we can do, um, in terms of a transfer or a transplant of cartilage, meaning moving a plug of cartilage from one area or from a cadaver into an area of damaged cartilage, that's a one-time surgery. It's typically performed as an outpatient, no overnight really? uh, stay in the hospital. Okay. Um, and that usually will require non-weight-bearing to let that new cartilage heal in for a period of six weeks or so, followed by some activity restriction for anywhere up to a few months to six months before they can really get back to sports. There are some bigger surgeries we do, which actually involve trying to regrow the cartilage. And there's a number of different techniques for that. Uh, in one case, you can actually transplant finely minced juvenile cartilage cells into a cartilage defect. In a different case, you can take a biopsy of the patient's own cartilage and send it off to a lab where they will filter out the cartilage cells and then send you back uh, a much bigger sample of those to be reimplanted wow. into the knee. In that case, that's a two-step surgery where you have to do the biopsy first, and then a few months later, you reimplant the cartilage. Um, and there are some other newer techniques where we try to stimulate the patient's own cartilage to grow by by placing basically some pastes with some different growth factors huh. and things into the defect. Um, and that can be a one-time surgery. But those where we're sort of relying on new cartilage to grow, uh, those tend to be a little bit more drawn out. Those are usually anywhere from 6 to 12 months before that patient is really back to oh, full activity. Wow. Okay. And so really they have to decide or help you. You have to consider what they've got else going on. And Correct. Wow. Interesting. Well, um, are, is anyone a candidate for these types of techniques, or are there some people that would not be candidates? There are. Again, it comes down to an assessment of the individual patient and their individual uh, situation. But in general, the best candidates for these types of surgeries 
are younger people. Of course, the question is going to be, what is younger? And in, in general, that probably is the 40 to 50 or younger oh, age okay. gray group. Um, but particularly the most important thing that makes someone a candidate is if they have a focal injury to the cartilage. And what I mean by that is, in general, the knee or the joint is in overall good shape and they have one specific injury where they've taken a piece or a divot to some of the cartilage. When you get into the stage where the cartilage d is diffusely worn down or there's a lot of widespread wear and tear, these techniques aren't it's really not, useful okay. and that puts someone more into the joint replacement category. Okay. Well, um, do we know yet how reliable these methods are? Has it been around long enough to kind of measure? It has. In in the medical world, we kind of think of things in short-term success rates, which is on the order of one to two years, medium-term success rate, which is probably five to ten years or so, and the long-term success rates, which gets measured in, in decades or more. We don't have enough data to talk about long-term success rates, but the medium-term results so far are quite promising. You know, wow. Most of these techniques, depending on what you're talking about, have longevity probably in the 80% or better range. If and that means getting back to their normal activity or their sport or getting back to normal activity and not needing any additional surgery. Wow. Okay. Um, are there any risks to, to this? There are, um, as with any surgery, there are basic risks of going under anesthesia and risks of infection and blood clots and those kind of things. Um, the main risks with these turn out really to be the success rates of the surgery itself. Obviously mm -hmm. if it doesn't heal or the cartilage doesn't take, uh, they're still going to have an issue with that knee and maybe looking at further surgery. Okay. Okay. Well, um, looking even beyond this, what else do you see happening or developing in this field? Probably the next thing on the horizon is going to be really focused on the biological side of healing cartilage. And people are already working on this, but talking about things like growth factors and stem cells and other things oh. that create a more favorable environment for cartilage to heal. I think we're pretty good right now at sort of the basic um, strategies to get new cartilage into these areas, but creating a more favorable environment to increase the success rates, to increase the quality of the new cartilage that grows. I think that's the new horizon. Wow. Well, that's exciting. Sounds really neat. Thank you so much for coming. I want to uh, thank Dr. Pat Todd Battaglia, an assistant professor of orthopedic surgery, uh, for speaking about cartilage repair and preservation. This has been Amber Smith for Upstate's HealthLink on Air. And now, Deirdre Nealon, editor of Upstate Medical University's literary and visual arts journal, The Healing Muse, with this week's selection. Catherine Howd Mahan, a professor of writing at Ithaca College, is the author of 32 published collections. Her latest chapbook is called Wild Grapes, Poems of Fox. I love how Mahan creates such vivid portraits of people caught in crisis or life-affirming moments. Listen now to two such poems. The first is titled, Where the Earth Makes New from Old. Leaves fall as cancer permeates her blood. A woman in midlife who's done her best to dance and rise against the deadly thud of so what, who cares, there's no heaven test. She started life a girl with strong green dreams, her father's garden, mother's story voice, then quickly learned a shadow's what it seems. 
an older brother's hands, no room for choice. She pulled away. Good books, the poems she wrote, whole worlds in finding out who she could be, yet always those gray fingers at her throat. The doctors tell her, seven months or so, she stands to watch October's gold wind blow. Her second poem is a happier one called Twelve String Guitar. She's taking it slow at first, this learning finger by finger on silver wires stretched long and taut from neck to belly of elegant, sturdy, polished wood. She's writing a song for her survival, seeking serenity, strum and pluck the way to find a higher power, shaping poem and chord and voice. Good pressure on unpolished frets, a growing strength and sure release. New music fills her world at last, and she can offer others peace. For listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air, brought to you each week by Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York. Please join us next week when we explore the increasing survival rates of cancer and the team approach to treating melanoma. If you missed any of today's show, listen on demand on our website at healthlinkonair.org or find a podcast in iTunes by searching for one word, HealthLink. I'm Amber Smith. Thanks for listening.